Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2021 has been defined by a deadly second wave of coronavirus, precarious geopolitical relations, a sharply contracting economy, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Shivani Mehta and this week we're diving deep into the issue of aid and development in a Taliban-led Afghanistan. The western withdrawal from Afghanistan and the rapid ascent of the Taliban has led to the collapse of the Afghan economy. Foreign aid, which is crucial towards sustaining the economy, has mostly stopped, resulting in food shortages, a decline in the value of local currency, and a collapsing health system. While 1.2 billion dollars have been pledged by international donors, it remains unclear whether this will be sufficient in restoring any semblance of normalcy in Afghanistan. In this episode of Interpreting India, we analyze how aid to Afghanistan will be structured under the Taliban government. How will India, a key development partner in Afghanistan, approach its aid policy in the wake of the Taliban takeover? And finally, what will this situation mean for the future of Afghanistan's development? Shanti Marriott D'Souza is the founder and president of Mantraya, an independent research forum that seeks to make constructive contributions in the realm of strategy, innovation, and alternatives. She is also a founding professor at the Kautelya School of Public Policy at Geetam University, Hyderabad. Welcome, Dr. D'Souza. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on board. I wanted to begin with a little bit of an introduction. Um, could you tell us something about this situation on the ground in Afghanistan, and if there are any aid agencies that are currently operational in the country? And uh, if you are aware, if the Taliban has taken any steps towards forming a policy for international aid, thank you for having me on board. I think this is a very timely question and a timely discussion, given the fact that since the capture of power by Taliban in of Kabul in uh, August twenty uh, August fifteenth onwards, there are a lot of uncertainties and concerns regarding the providing of aid to Afghanistan. And as you know, Taliban initially in the 1990s was opposed to any kind of international community's role in Afghanistan. Has actually taken on a different role now, which is uh, which is projecting to be more moderate and more uh, amenable to the international community. So basically, the Taliban is looking at areas where they can engage the international community because they do need. Funding one to run the country, secondly uh, to deal with the unfolding humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan. As you've seen in the pictures uh, on August 15, there was total chaos as uh, they captured power and uh, the international community, particularly the Americans, were trying to leave the country. And in the ensuing chaos and uncertainty, there were concerns about how do we actually help people in Afghanistan, one, in terms of leaving the country, but more importantly, about those who are left behind. And there were the fundamental question of how do you provide aid in this scenario, where there has been a capture by a terrorist group, which has been sanctioned by international organizations. And the whole question of how do you give aid to this group uh, brings to you to the fundamental reality that 
the de facto rulers of Afghanistan is very different from de jure, and therein the distinction has to be maintained. But having said that, and looking at the situation inside Afghanistan, uh, where there is lot of issues of starvation, displaced people, refugees, added to the fact that there's shortage of supplies. And we are looking at a huge catastrophic humanitarian disaster in the making. Uh, thereby, I think uh, the UN has actually engaged the Taliban at a certain level, and the UN agencies are functioning. There are also other organizations which are functi- functioning on the ground, which they did even in the 1990s. And Taliban, with its reformed image to gain some international legitimacy, acceptance, and more importantly, funding, has been open to this kind of engagement. So when we look at Taliban now, we cannot get back to that earlier mode of, you know, getting into this debate uh, of whether we engage them or not or recognize them or not. I would just caution that any kind of engagement or recognition which would come in time uh, in the future needs to be factored in about how the Taliban actually deliver aid or let the international organizations and agencies deliver aid. And that is very critical because Afghanistan, despite the fact that in the last two decades had made considerable progress in a lot of many indicators, uh, particularly in terms of enrollment of girl children, uh, going to schools, and also in terms of women working in offices and young people having a lot of employment opportunities, actually didn't have a sustaining uh, revenue of its own. And thereby there was this crisis inside Afghanistan for the last two decades that they didn't have their own revenue generating model and were dependent on external aid. It was a rentier state for the last four decades and continued to be so. So when we're looking at a situation where, you know, you're looking at an imminent economic collapse and there is a rise in the drug trade and there are concerns about how do you deal with people who are in real need of assistance at this point of time, particularly when the winters are going to set in very soon. I think we need to have a more pragmatic approach of how to work with the Taliban. And since they have sent out the signals and indicators that they are willing to engage, uh, international organizations, particularly the UN agencies, I think will be able to do uh, much more now and need to do much more. You just mentioned the humanitarian crisis. And uh, to that, I want to ask you, now, the international community has pledged uh, nearly $1 billion uh, in critical aid to Afghanistan. So to what extent do you think this aid is sufficient in addressing Afghanistan's most pressing needs? And uh, more broadly, what more can the international community do to ensure that the aid reaches the people? Well, uh, I think that's an important step taken by the international community in terms of their commitment and uh, the amount they have sanctioned. But as you look at Afghanistan, even in the last two decades, there has been a problem with aid delivery. And my fear is that international community is going to repeat that mistakes, which it did in the last two decades of aid uh, intervention and delivery. Now, if you look at how uh, most of the international communities response to needs in Afghanistan had been in terms of uh, the aid they gave. They did it quite independently and parallel to the Afghan government. Most of the money did not go through the Afghan government budget, and thereby it created a situation where there were parallel institutions of governance and aid delivery, and in a way delegitimized the Afghan government because it didn't have the money to deliver the basics need uh, to the Afghan people. 
so we, we we did see a situation where the international community did things quite independently and uh, most of these projects were quick impact projects and there was very little done in terms of institution building and so by that ex- that example and that lesson learned in terms of the two decades of international community's role should be an indicator of how aid is given in that country so one fundamental thing is to look at what are the needs and map those needs and secondly is to look at how do you deliver and how and third and which is most important is to have some kind of institutions which will be able to deliver have some accountability and transparency and make afghans take charge of their own affairs i mean what couldn't be done in this last two decades is going to be repeated by providing aid which actually doesn't reach the ground so for my travels in afghanistan if you look at the cities like kabul herat mazar sharif and even kandahar you do see a lot of development but that is that benefited the elite and did not percolate to the masses and uh, in areas around uh, nangarhar province you did see a lot of people who didn't even have access to basics and thereby any kind of humanitarian aid which is given uh, without any kind of uh, accountability and transparency is going to add more problem so fundamentally one you got to understand that afghanistan has always been in a conflict situation it's not a post conflict situation and the last two decades i think the international community did a fundamental mistake of looking at it as a post conflict situation and now with the taliban takeover we're still not out of the conflict situation so that conflict economy itself has created a political economy of sorts with actual aid given is not been delivered and more importantly the recipient doesn't get it so there's a lot of issues in terms of how do you do this aid uh, interventions and i think the important lessons from afghanistan and uh, more importantly it's just not about giving money and making those commitments it's also about delivering it in time and that's not going to happen because now you have taliban who will be dictating a lot of terms and conditions of how this aid should be given to whom it should be given on what conditions it should be given so if the international community does not use it le- its leverages now in terms of having conditionality put and seeing progress on ground in terms of what the taliban are going to do with that money i think we're just going to fuel in more money into the political economy of conflict and this has been a vicious circle afghanistan has been and i see that this is going to be more troublesome in the future um on the topic of political economy of conflict uh, dr dissus i was wondering what your opinion is on the role that um, actors such as china russia and pakistan are likely to play um we know that china has pledged about 31 million dollars to the taliban government um so how do you see these three actors which have been talked about um quite a lot in the last couple of months uh, so what is the role that you see them playing going forward and is the aid coming from these actors going to be different from uh, aid coming from western partners that you spoke about in the last two decades Yes I think uh, that's an important question and if you look at China's role in Afghanistan uh, which uh, has been uh, problematic in some sense because China has not given as much as other countries particularly with India but China has provided a lot of assistance in terms of its 
returns on economic investment. So in the last two decades, it has been looking at oil exploration in Amudarya region. It's been looking at uh, copper, my, uh, copper uh, extraction from Mesainek and other such in economic interests, uh, which, uh, which are now associated with CIPEC and Obor. And China does have huge economic interest. So the the fundamental question is China has made those pledges. I mean, there's always a difference between what is pledged and what is given and what is used. So ultimately, if you don't have a real account of what how much money has actually been utilized and how what impact it has been made, I think that fundamental question again leads you that you might have a critique of the Western way of uh, aid intervention, but China would not be different because, as you know, and Afghans would know better, that China is not there for any altruistic reason. It's there to have its economic interests and security interests taken care of. So if you look at the regional countries, uh, I mean, they have not been able to do much more uh, because I think fundamentally, if you look at how the political economy works again, it's more about flushing their cheap goods inside Afghanistan and they needed that market, so they didn't let this uh, Afghanistan have an have an indigenous revenue or economic base, and thereby they didn't even have the small industries or small and medium enterprises where you could make some small items and help them uh, generate revenue for themselves and provide some economic opportunities and employment options. All of this was undermined by the regional countries. And Afghanistan's tragedy is that time and again, its internal contradictions get caught in the regional power play. And that's very much existing now. So if you look at Pakistan again, I mean, uh, people who have not been able to leave because of the closure of flights have been using the land borders. And Pakistan has closed the borders. And this is a huge crisis because if you look at the uh, medical and the health issues Afghans are facing, for which the only place they can go now with no uh, flight options available is Pakistan, and they have closed the border, and people are dying at the borders. And so this is a very tragic uh, scenario which is unfolding where regional countries, instead of helping them, are actually making it difficult even to cross the borders because none of them want refugees. And secondly, it's more about even the money they're giving has been in terms of pledges, not actually in terms of what could be utilized. Um, I'd like to move now to something that you mentioned, um, which was human rights. Uh, you, you sort of hinted at the refugee crisis, uh, collapsing health system and the lack of education and employment in the country. Um, under the governance of Taliban, what can the international community and maybe specifically India um, do to deal with these issues that goes beyond, say, pledging uh, funds, as you said? Well, I think uh, the scope is limited of what India can do, but there is a certain amount of space still available. So if you look at the fundamental issues in terms of women's rights, human rights, protection of rights of the minorities, and also about education and health, which are very crucial for the Afghans now, I think Taliban has sent some signals in terms of they would be willing to engage with the international community and uh, particularly with countries in the region. So there is that little uh, space which is still available because one, I think the Taliban wouldn't want to be seen the way they were seen in 1990s. So the Taliban 2.0 is trying a very reform image. And within that image building exercise, there is some scope by which India could 
work with the Taliban on issues which uh, Afghans need. See, ultimately, if you look at what India has done in terms of its aid and its development assistance, uh, which and it's the largest regional donor, is that it has accrued substantial amount of goodwill inside Afghanistan across all ethnic groups. And that is definitely an advantage point of India. But if you look at how India could carry on its projects now, I think there are different ways and means to do it. One is within the Taliban, there is certain segment and section within the Taliban who have been amenable to India's assistance. And these are people basically from the provinces who have been the mid-level commanders who had been sending the signals for a couple of years, which New Delhi did not pick up. But having said that, and given that India's projects had been useful to the Afghans and this considerable amount of uh, ownership of those projects, it will be difficult for Taliban actually to dismantle those projects because they do need this kind of uh, assistance and more so because they don't want their own populace rising in revolt. So there will be a moderation in terms of you know how India uh, India's aid could be delivered and how it could be actually be acceptable to the Afghans. But then moderation with the Taliban comes with certain level of engagement. And so herein is the fundamental question of whether New Delhi can actually engage the Taliban or recognize it or work with other partners to bring about some pressure on the Taliban to make a certain dent in terms of their thinking and also about uh, bringing about certain moderation in the way uh, of the ideology. So I think... Um, India, given the fact that had projects which have been useful to Afghans, still can continue these projects with the Afghans doing the work themselves, and this can be done remotely. But inside the ground and as the humanitarian crisis is unfolding, I think India needs to do much more, particularly when the flight flying options uh, will open up again and India would have this opportunity of getting Afghans uh, to India for medical assistance, making it a little more easier on terms of the visas and also having a coordinated approach. Uh, within the international community of taking a concerted effort that uh, any kind of uh, uh, Taliban objection or any kind of Taliban uh, issues in terms of how the Taliban will actually deal with the aid. So there is scope, there is leverage both inside Afghanistan and the region wherein India can work. And we did see the signals coming from Russia and Iran because there is a concern now that with the total capture of power and the linkages of Taliban we have with the international terrorist group and the presence of ISIS, Afghanistan under Taliban will not be much better than it was. So uh, given those concerns and the fact that, you know, you know the humanitarian crisis which will impact Iran and uh, Central Asian republics, uh, there is a scope of working with these countries and there are different forums to do that. Uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization could be one of them, but the other various where you could actually have trilateral mechanisms of dealing with issues uh, with the Taliban and also with the regional countries. Um, if you could speak a little bit more about India's role in Afghanistan, is there an opportunity for India to fill the gap, like you said, in terms of building um, transparent and accountable institutions so that it trickles down or reaches the people that it's meant for. Um, is there something that India can do uh, towards that? And also in your reading of the situation so far, do you now see New Delhi thinking more actively in terms of policy towards Afghanistan? Uh, 
Well, I think uh, that space and that opportunity which India had in the last two decades has been lost. And it will be re really difficult for, Afghan uh, for India to work in Afghanistan in the way of it could have in the last two decades, particularly in terms of bringing in accountability, transparency, and institution building. So uh, I think it's it's not going to be easy, but there are, again, spaces and ways to look at it. If you look fundamentally of what India can do through the international community, particularly to the United Nations, I think there is scope here of how the aid which is delivered by the UN agencies uh, lead to certain kind of uh, institution building wherein you could have uh, Afghans taking greater ownership. So if you're not trying to make a distinction between Taliban and Afghans uh, here per se, but there are leaders inside the country who could actually play a role in terms of seeing that the aid is delivered in an accountable, transparent, and more importantly, more effectively and timely. So it depends on India because of the clout it has between various among various leaders and the leverages it has inside Afghanistan to build that kind of coalition inside Afghanistan so that there is some kind of accountability of seeing how that aid is delivered. But more importantly, it's also about bringing in some moderation with the Taliban and making them more amenable uh, and more eligible in terms of international norms of governance. And here, I think, fundamentally, uh, it depends on how India works with the UN and uh, UN agencies at international level. At the regional level, I think India could do more. Uh, even it could maybe uh, look at areas which have not explored before in terms of the Islamic countries and work with them in terms of giving aid. Bangladesh would be one country which had a lot of leverage inside Afghanistan, particularly with the way they had been working. So I think there are areas inside the region, inside international community of how India can work. But it's 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 a difficult time now because it's it's a time of transition. We still don't know how this uh, regime is going to unfold in terms of its norms of governance, in terms of its ideology, and more importantly about whether it will go back to the earlier days of 1990s. And it could because if it doesn't have any option of dealing with the international community and it needs money to run the country and it doesn't get it, and then it would maybe reverse to what it did in terms of depending on uh, other sources of funding, particularly what comes from drugs, what comes from international, uh, international terrorist organizations who fund this movement. So uh, it's a delicate situation and it's a precarious situation and the choices are tough. But having said that, I don't think they are not. We don't have opportunities to look at this uh, country in different ways and find people to work on the ground who are still amenable to India, including with the, within the Taliban and the region. Because I think it needs a more concerted and coordinated strategy, starting from Afghanistan to the region and then to the international community. And with India occupying the seat at the UN now. Uh, in the Security Council, it had that option and still has certain options of how it can work with those leverages and see what the trade-offs are. So essentially, there are a lot of levers and leverages, as you said, uh, available to India, and it's about making choice Yes. Uh, at this point. You mentioned ground realities, and one thing I wanted to ask you is, with the UN agencies currently functioning in Afghanistan or other agencies, uh, is there any sense of what the, the sort of 
challenges on the ground are for someone uh, trying to improve the situation in Afghanistan? Well, I think the challenges on the ground have been substantially in terms of one, the security, which now people say that with the Taliban, it's the security factor has been taken care of. But there's still a lot of uncertainty of, you know, how things are going to change because the way uh, the Americans pulled out of Afghanistan has left everyone in a shock and more importantly has affected the trust factor. So they don't trust anybody and that's quite understandable because of the long uh, conflict Afghanistan has been through and how the international community has already always pulled out of Afghanistan, having achieved their objectives, particularly when you look at the great powers. So there are different challenges on the ground in terms of actually, uh, you know, building that coalition and coordination for how the aid can be given. So, but there are opportunities. One, I think, which we fundamentally don't really look at seriously is about the women's groups. They're still in Afghanistan. They're still protesting. They're still raising the flag of resistance. And they want to do things inside Afghanistan. So I think we cannot let down on these women who are brave, who have taken great risks to stand up for their rights for the future of Afghanistan and also for the uh, economic uh, development of Afghanistan. So one of them has been a woman entrepreneur from Herat who had a saffron business. And she has taken up this uh, forum of how she would actually oppose the Taliban if they intervene in that space, which they have got in the last two decades. Likewise, with the youth groups and civil society groups, few of them, if you look at them, uh, particularly around Jalalabad and Kandahar, they still do exist and are still raising voices. So we're not looking at those spaces, which are very essential to engage them at this point of time and provide them that support. So the conditions are pretty tough. Uh, there is a lot of uncertainty, there is a lot of fear, there's a lot of distrust. But there are people inside Afghanistan who are ready to work with the international community. And if we don't work with them and through them, then I think we we will lose that opportunity, which is so important to retain the gains of the last two decades, particularly with women, uh, children, the youth, and also the minorities. So uh, if if you look at the challenges, they might be yellow, but the opportunities. So it it is it's a it's it needs astute diplomacy. It needs a kind of planning. It needs a kind of a vision of what you want to do in Afghanistan. If if the policy of India is to wait and watch and then flee, which we did, or if it's a policy to just work with the Americans under the American security umbrella in the last two decades and then not see the writing on the wall that things are going to change dramatically, particularly from the time the U.S. signed the peace agreement with the Taliban in February 2020 till now. What has been the scenario planning in New Delhi? What were they actually envisioning Afghanistan to be? And despite knowing that things are turning so dramatically in Afghanistan and so fast that it was counterproductive to actually put in more money there, So you actually put in money into a situation which was not giving you any returns. And returns is just not in terms of your national interest. It's also about your strategic gains. And more more importantly, as a strategic partner, India had made that commitment to the Afghans when they signed the agreement on strategic partnership in 2011. So just to leave Afghanistan is not an option. 
and not just because of your national interest, but also about the commitments you had made to the Afghans, particularly if India has the aspirations of rising power. So coming to your question about challenges and linking it with India and what India can do, I think there are opportunities still existing, but the space is closing in and uh, India needs to move in fast. I think the the images of women on the streets in Kabul protesting and standing up for their rights was, was very inspiring, but also disheartening at the same time to see people uh, have to stand up for something so basic and to fight for it. Um, but thank you for that. And I think this brings me to my last question of what would you say the future holds um, on the question of social development in Afghanistan? Well, we're not looking at a very bright and rosy pictures, but when it comes to Afghanistan, it's always better to start with low expectations and not with high expectations, which we, which the international community did in the last two decades. So if your expectations are low and you build it up incrementally, I think then you can see some modicum of success. But otherwise, I think it will be a challenge because what happened on August 15 has fundamentally altered uh, the humanitarian, the security, the political, the economic landscape of Afghanistan in ways it's very difficult to actually come to terms with. I mean, uh, given the fact that I've been going to that country and have been seeing progress, even at times when the barricades for the security reasons kept increasing, there was a mo- there was a certain amount of hope that Afghanistan will come out of it. But what happened on August 15 fundamentally changed that reality, and uh, more so because you see Afghans are in deep trouble, and so we don't see a very positive and rosy picture now. It's a grim scenario, and it's it's actually a worst case scenario if you were doing any exercises in scenario building. But within that worst case scenario, you still have some options and you have certain leverages, some of which I've already mentioned. One is inside Afghanistan. Uh, It's just not about seeing those images and fighting for the rights of the women, but also about ensuring that their lives and safety is paramount, that the minorities' rights are protected, that this girl or uh, child can still go to school and not stop studying at class seven because they do have dreams, they do have aspirations. So international community in those, la- in those last two decades did a lot to raise that expectations and build those hopes. And when you pull out and you actually leave them in the lurch, what happens to those broken dreams and shattered lives? And I think that's uh, this, this is what happened in Afghanistan on August 15 is is a responsibility of everybody. This is a collective shame and therefore it has to be collective responsibility and there's no two ways of thinking about it. And um, in terms of social development, uh, it's always, it's a positive sign that we still have those women groups and youth groups uh, fighting for their rights and standing for their rights. And uh, if we can walk through them and see that their interests, their lives are protected, I think we can still have that space. But if you can't do that, then I think we have lost this space forever. So it depends on how you actually work inside the country, uh, engage the various communities, build that linkages which are required and maintain them more importantly, and link it to the larger question with the international community of what kind of campaign or what kind of assistance are you going to give to Afghans? Because we're just not dealing with the humanitarian crisis, 
but we are looking at a larger question of employment opportunities, economic uh, options for the Afghans. Because without that, I think the economic collapse itself will create a vacuum, which will be very hard to deal with. And that vacuum will be taken on by the extremist forces and international terrorist groups, wherein Afghanistan will again get back to what it was in the 1990s. So we are actually trying to avoid that kind of scenario. Uh, we will have to look at options of uh, getting out from that traditional thinking of wait and watch, look at some out-of-box options and take some risk because I think it's time India moves into some risk-taking behavior if it wants to live up to its image and uh, aspirations of a rising power. One thing that has stuck with me through our conversation is that we need to approach Afghanistan not as a country in sort of post-conflict recovery, but a nation that is still in a state of conflict. But uh, thank you so much. I, this conversation has been extremely insightful. And uh, to understand not just the geopolitics and the international community's sort of role uh, and the, the scope for the role that it can play, but also to understand what's happening on the ground. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. D'Souza. I think that's a wrap for us. Yeah, thank you, Shibani. I think this has been timely discussion and it's important for us not to forget Afghanistan and Afghans because I think it's a, it's, it's a collective responsibility for what has happened in Afghanistan. So I think we all have to do a bit. So great talking to you and have a good day. Thank you so much. Have a good day. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.